Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our class on John Chrysostom's homilies on marriage and family life. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we continue in homily 20, which is on Ephesians chapter 5, and is, is a substantial homily. I mean, as you can see, uh, we're, we're still waiting our way through it. We've been doing so for the past couple of weeks. God willing, we'll finish it today. We'll see. And then, um, as you can tell from this book, we are, we are really nearing uh, the halfway point, if not even crossing the halfway point already. So, um, we will quickly be moving on to uh, um, Brian Wolfmuller's book that we all voted on last time after this, Has Christianity in America Failed? So, if you haven't made your purchase there, um, you've still, you still got some time. You've still got some weeks, but uh, you may want to pick that up. Um, you know, my experience with this text, first time teaching through it, I've read through it before, first time teaching through it, I feel like every class I begin, I should, you know, I should begin with an, with an absolution <laughs> and a statement of, of God's grace. Um, marriages and family life, uh, on marriage and family life, um, these are sensitive topics. And uh, as you can tell, and as I warned from the beginning, Chrysostom pulls no punches. And he's, uh, he's, he's definitely medicinal. It's a strong medicine. It doesn't always taste good. It certainly doesn't always feel good, um, but it is nonetheless a medicine for our soul. And uh, we do need to remember that uh, you know, the, the, place, the place in which we're going to feel our sins the most acutely is in our core vocational roles, that of husband and wife, that of parents and children, and that of uh, employer-employees. That, that's where we're going to feel our sin most acutely. It's why, that's why Luther in the small catechism, in, in the section on confession and absolution, what sin should we confess? He says, consider your place in life. That's your vocation, according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a, I forget the exact order, but are you a, a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Um, so these core vocations are really where we see the the accusation of the law coming strongly against us. We also need to see then Christ bearing our burdens and taking our sins, even our most grievous and shameful sins, upon himself to the cross, putting them away from us forever, giving us an absolution, giving us a fresh start, healing us with his word, and then granting us the strength to bear witness to that word in the lives of other people and in the lives of this country where, unfortunately, marriage and family life are under such direct assault. I think there's a, I think there's a reason, too, why... Um, there, there has been, perhaps even, even more recently, an emphasis on marriage fam and family life in the church. You know, seeds that were planted all the way back in the, in the 50s and the 60s are now bearing their fruit. And it's kind of like if we don't push back for the sake of the younger generations, you know, then, then we're, we're simply handing them over to the devil and we're handing them over to this world where marriage and family life are increasingly uh, contrary or presented in a contrary fashion to how God has ordered this world and how God's Word uh, governs these most important aspects of our life. 
The family is the foundation of not only the state, but the family is the foundation of the church. So with a thorough dose of, of Christ's cleansing blood, with a thorough dose of absolution, uh, we, we want to press forward and, and be intrepid and uh, engage here with Chrysostom. Page 60 is where we left off. <coughs> and here he is, uh, he is giving, he's, he's given quite profound and um, concrete now advice. And he has, uh, to both husband and wife, and he has turned to this idea of money, which of course Chrysostom is well known for. In fact, he got in, in quite a bit of trouble um, for his statements against the rich and powerful, his statements about the overtaxation being a form of thievery of the upper class to the lower class. Um, and so you can see some of this uh, brilliance and passion shining through. Um, this, this thought, of course, begins on 59. A wife should never nag her husband. You lazy coward, you have no ambition. Look at your relatives and neighbors. They have plenty of money. Their wives have far more than I do. Let no wife say any such thing. She is her husband's body, and it is not for her to dictate to her head, but to submit and obey. But why should she endure poverty, some will ask. If she is poor, let her console herself by thinking of those who are much poorer still. If she really loved her husband, she would never speak to him like that, but would value having him close to her more than all the gold in the world. And I think that's really the take-home point is so often in, our, in, our, um, in the battles that take place within marriage, we do a fundamental uh, mistake and that is, whatever it is that, that is in conflict is very important to us, but is it really as important as alienating your spouse? And we, don't, we frequently don't see it the way, he's, the way Chrysostom's putting it here. Um, again, he's talking to wives, but the shoe fits both feet here. Um, would, uh, excuse me, if she really loved her husband, she would never speak to him like that, but would value having him close to her more than all the gold in the world. So to value the closeness that we um, have with our spouse more than the issue at hand, and letting that govern how we discuss and uh, engage the issue that is at hand. All right, Chrysostom continues, Likewise, if a husband has a wife who behaves this way, he must never exercise his authority by insulting and abusing her. Okay, so here... here um, and again, I think that this fits both ways, but of course Chrysostom is on the, on the mail now. If, um, you know, if, he's, if he's endured this kind of insult from his wife, he does not exercise his authority by insulting and abusing her. Instead, he, and I think again there it's verbal in mind, but either, way, either one obviously. Instead, he should show true nobility of spirit and patiently remind her that in the wisdom of heaven, Poverty is no evil. Do you think that would work? I don't know if that would work. <laughs> but it's worth a shot. Then she will stop complaining. Well, I hear I think Chrysostom is suffering from what all of us preachers do, and that's, you know, you have to speak in generalities, and it may not always be the case. It may not always work exactly as it does in your homily. But this is nonetheless the ideal and a way of exhorting female and male to behave in a, in a way that's harmonious. But he must not teach her only by words, but by deeds. 
he should teach her to be detached from high social position. If he is so himself, she will imitate him. So there's a great idea. I mean, whether you have high social position or not, presuming you do, um, to be detached from it and to teach your wife this. So this is a form of, a concrete form of humility. Beginning on their wedding night, let him be an example of gentleness, temperance, and self-control, and she will be likewise. He should advise her not to decorate herself with golden earrings, necklaces, or other jewelry, or to accumulate expensive clothes. Instead, her appearance should be dignified, and dignity is never served by theatrical excess. Yeah, for the longest time, the, what he calls theatrical excess, and it was even true in ancient Rome and, uh, and other similar cultures, but um, theatrical excess, going over the top with the makeup, um, paints one as a, as, a, as a female of ill repute. So um, to, to come back from that and, and dress in uh, simplicity, dignity, uh, etc. Okay, furnish your house neatly and soberly. If the bridegroom shows his wife that he takes no pleasure in worldly excess and will not stand for it, their marriage will remain free from the evil influences that are so popular these days. <laughs> all those years ago, all those centuries ago, what would Chrysostom say in, in our context? Oh, I don't know. I think it'd be brutal. Let them shun the immodest music and dancing that are currently so fashionable. <laughs> I mean, how could that be any worse than what we have today? But yeah, there's, yeah. I don't know, there's a lot to be said here. Of course, of course um, there was a time in, uh, in the LCMS and in much of Christendom here in America where, where dancing and such was forbidden entirely. Okay, well, maybe that's going too far. And maybe we've got kind of a black eye from that. Uh, but the pendulum has swung so far the other way that Christians don't even consider whether a, a form of music or a form of dancing uh, might be deleterious to the well-being of the marriage or the household or the souls of the people involved. So we should probably bring that back. We should probably, we should probably find the golden middle between outright forbidding dancing, which I think is really hard to do, and then on the other hand, though, I'm just saying, okay, therefore, everything is permitted and everything is wise. Uh, that doesn't strike me as, as wise either. Yeah. That, maybe that's all the comment I should make. <laughs> Let them shun the immodest music and dancing that are currently so fashionable. I am aware that many people think me ridiculous for giving such advice. But if you listen to me, you will understand the advantages of a sober lifestyle more and more as time goes on. You will no longer laugh at me, but will laugh instead at the way people live now like silly children or drunken men. What is our duty then? Remove from your lives shameful, immodest, and satanic music, and don't associate with people who enjoy such profligate entertainment. That's indicting. That's indicting. I'll have, to, I'll have to go through my playlist, get rid of some things. When your bride... Yeah, the problem, is, the problem is our culture, and here you can see where the arts have... I mean, for a very long time, our culture has become so lowbrow 
Uh, but also, so, like, what song can you listen to that doesn't have some element of sin or nastiness in it? I mean, it's very, like, his criteria is hard. I guess you might be left with church music or instrumentals. I don't know. But it is, um, you know, whether we're able to take this advice strictly or not, it is worth, it is worth considering. It is worth mulling over. Yeah, and that's a great phrase, isn't it? Profligate entertainment. Because, I mean, he didn't have YouTube or uh, 1,047 cable channels, you know, <laughs> the Internet, all of this. So sometimes, sometimes, yeah, the, the profligate entertainment, what we just immediately go home and kind of sit down and dump into our, our eyes and our souls. It's worth, it's worth considering, even if we can't take as, as strong a line here as, as 21st century Americans as Chrysostom would like us to take, it is nonetheless worth considering. Hey, Pastor, I have a quick comment. Yes, sir, please. What's so interesting is that, that our current <coughs> music critics of the day and our, our thought police, they're not looking at our music critically. They're looking at music from the 40s and 50s and maybe 60s and rejecting Mm. Like that song, uh, a Christmas song, where uh, a young couple's out and they're, you know, he doesn't want to go home. Oh, okay. Well, what is that, Barry? That uh, not a Frank Sinatra song. Yeah, baby, it's cold outside. Baby, it's cold outside. That is yeah. that racist somehow now, or no? It's no? not racist. It's he's wanting to spend the night. Oh, I see. In an innocent way. Oh, I see. It's such I a, see. a nice night and everything. And they've gone completely to the uh, purient side on this. And it's been a standard forever. Mm, mm. Yeah, interesting. You know. Interesting. So, so not, even the, uh, not even the music of old is... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm looking at the other aspect, and that is the, the danger of the music. Not just the... You, you, you're looking at the words and the music. I'm looking at what they do. Mm. They put the ear pods in, and a lot of these women are—they put them in their ear, and they're running. Like we have, we, once a year, somebody gets eaten by a mountain lion up there at oh, Great yeah. State Park or something like that. Or they put it in their ears, and they're driving, and they don't hear something <laughs> on the freeway, and they get involved in an accident. Right? Yeah. So yeah. You should not have your have your ear plugs in. When, so you're dr when you're driving. Well, yeah, lots of lots of different things to consider here, from from music of yesteryear to what what counts for music these days, and uh, and then yeah, an interesting an interesting tangent too to just think about um, what earphones do to you socially, <laughs> or or if not socially, they make you lion food on the trail or. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Well, human nature remains the same. Yeah. So and whatever, whatever he says in that book. Right. When did he When did he write it? I mean, this would have been what fourth, fifth century, something so like that. Yeah. But to now, he's still, he's still valid. Four, he says. Fourth century, in all likelihood, yeah. So things don't change. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's. I think that that probably is the. 
things change, but basically they stay the same. <laughs> yeah, so this is a, yeah, I think this is a, you know, a refreshing, a refreshing voice for us to consider, even if, again, even if we can't take it as like, you know, I'm going to go home and erase my iPhone and start over type of thing. Um, you know, I'm going to get off of all, all media entirely kind of thing. Um, even if, you, if you're not ready to go to that kind of extreme or that's just not practical in our society, nonetheless to consider these things and to be a little more critical and to see how they influence us. I mean, yeah, mu uh, music is very powerful in terms of the moods and emotions. And if you listen to um, angry, hateful type of music, you know, lusty, frivolous, foolish kind of music, and you just you saturate yourself in that, um, then don't be surprised when that's your mood and outlook on life. Um, yeah, music's very powerful. Luther has, has kind of said famously that um, aside from, from theology itself, music is the most powerful and influential force in the world. And he talks about the sort of the medicinal quality of it, that he, if you're in a funk and you listen to music, sometimes it'll lift you out of that funk. He talks about um, David with Saul. Saul's being pestered by the, by the demon. And uh, as, as David plays... Um, Saul finds relief and comfort, and so he talks about the power of music that way. Yeah, for good or for ill. So we want to keep that in mind. I know it's something I'm, I'm very sensitive of as a parent, too, with my, with my kiddos, although, boy, in our culture, I mean, even at their school and that kind of thing, it's, it's just kind of playing all the stuff that is, is raunchy. They've just got the raunchy words taken out of it, you know? All right. <laughs> Life in Sodom. <laughs> they don't really give you a manual for this. Except when, when it does go on fire, don't, don't look behind you. All right. When your, when your bride sees your manner of life. What I like about this, too, is Chrysostom is putting this on the husband. And he's saying, you want to talk about leading your family. You know, it starts with you. And then here are some very concrete ways in which you lead your family. Now, what, what music do you put on in your house? What... Uh, what ways do you yourself dress and spend money, and what kind of how do you furnish your house? And, um, that's these are all these are all very subtle but very impactful ways um, that that Chrysostom enjoins the husbands uh, to lead. When your bride and and yeah, and none of it is none of it is dominical or uh, from on high, um, you know, words and arguments and and commandments. Uh, it's it's example. When your bride sees your manner of life, she will say to herself, Wonderful, what a wise man my husband is. He regards this passing life as nothing. He has married me to be a good mother for his children and a prudent manager of his household. I mean, now all of this to modern ears is, is quite sexist, but I actually don't think it is. And I think it's quite biblical, and I don't think the Bible is sexist. Um, I think that that is at, at base and root essence what, uh, what marriage is about and, um, you know, prescriptively what, what young men who are looking to be married ought to be looking for. Right? Well, I mean, what are we, what do men look for in wives now? Well, first of all, you know, is she physically attractive? Okay, which we've already talked about how foolish that is because it's here and gone. Okay, is she physically attractive? Do we have some sort of chemistry or click? Do we enjoy each other? Do we enjoy the same things? What does any of that have to do with anything? 
Not to mention, what makes you think when you have kids that you're going to be allowed to continue with any of that? See, this is the heavy, heavy influence of romanticism. Um, what, is the, what does the Bible lay forth? What does Chrysostom lay forth? Here's the essence. Would she be a good mother or not? <laughs> okay. Um, will, will she raise your children in a good and godly manner? Um, will she be a prudent manager of the household? And that's, that's a beautiful picture, too. While the, while the man is, is external or predominantly external, outside, working, bringing home a living, protecting, doing all of these sorts of things, um, the woman is the true manager of the household. And as much as we might want to say as, as males and as fathers, oh, well, we have this huge influence and impact on our children, that's true enough, and it's very often undercut in our society. But the fact of the matter is, mom has a much larger influence, much much huger and vaster uh, amount of hours spent with those kiddos. And so, yeah, is she going to be a good manager of the household? Those are really the concrete things to look at. These are vo vocational, dutiful, not romantic, uh, very functional, very practical ty types of things. And um, very, much, very much changes our mindset as people who have thoroughly, thoroughly imbibed uh, romantic, capital R, romantic tenets instead of uh, biblical tenets. I mean, how would you flip this? I'm not sure that Chrysostom does, but how would you flip this? What, what would a young woman look for in a man? Is he going to lead me in a godly way? Is he going to be a good example uh, for me and my children? Is he going to protect us? Is he going to provide for us? Is he going to uh, uh, in any way betray or hurt us? Uh, is he going to stick with us through thick and thin no matter what? I, I mean, those are the kinds of things reciprocally that um, young Christian women should be looking for in a man. You know, is he going to help me and my children get to heaven and provide and protect us uh, in this life as we're going there? I mean, those would be fundamental, fundamental types of things. Not like, you know, does he have a nice haircut? Does he drive a fast car? How many muscles does he have, etc. You know, the kind of stuff that people are into these days. So, um, very, very different. Okay. Top of 61, will this sort of life be distasteful for a young bride? Only perhaps for the shortest time. And soon she will discover how delightful it is to live this way. She will retain her modesty if you retain yours. Don't engage in idle conversations. It never profits anyone to talk too much. Whenever you... <laughs> When I think every man wants that embroidered on a pillow. It never profits anyone to talk too much. Whenever you give your wife advice, always begin by telling her how much you love her. Ooh, we fail at that. Nothing will persuade her so well to admit the wisdom of your words as her assurance that you are speaking to her with sincere affection. Tell her that you are convinced that money is not important that only thieves thirst for it constantly, that you love her more than gold. And indeed, an intelligent, discreet, and pious young woman is worth more than all the money in the world. So true. So true. An intelligent, discreet, and pious young woman is worth more than all the money in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely, hands down. Because I see men give up practically all the money in the world when they don't find this and have to get divorced or want to get divorced um, because they've chosen poorly. Tell her that you love her more than your own life because this present life is nothing. 
and that your only hope is that the two of you pass through this life in such a way that in the world to come, you will be united in perfect love. Okay, so here's, here's my, um, my free hint for the day. Uh, put in, put in, your, in your phone for uh, next year's Valentine's Day. Chrysostom, Marriage and Family Life, page 61. Right? Here's all the inspiration you need um, to talk sweetly and in a very godly and, and um, beautiful way to your spouse, to your wife. Tell her that you love her more than your own life because this present life is nothing. That your only hope is that the two of you pass through this life in such a way that in the world to come you will be united in perfect love. Say to her, our time here is brief and fleeting, but if we are pleasing to God, we can exchange this life for the kingdom to come. Then we will be perfectly one, both with Christ and each other. Yeah, and Chrysostom really nails it there. That's what, that's what marriage in the kingdom to come is. We will be perfectly one, both with Christ and each other. And our pleasure will know no bounds. I value your love above all things. And nothing would be so bitter or painful to me as our being at odds with each other. Even if I lose everything, any affliction is tolerable if you will be true to me. I'm beautiful, beautiful words. Show her that you value her company and prefer being at home to being out. Esteem her in the presence of your friends and children. Praise and show admiration for her good acts. And if she ever does anything foolish, advise her patiently. Pray together at home and go to church. When you come back home, let each ask the other the meaning of the readings and the prayers. I mean, what a fantastic way to, uh, to spend a Sunday lunch, talking about God's Word and reflecting on what struck you and uh, you know, what, what is good for your family to uh, take in and, and the kids to take in. And this, too, is you know, the, great, the great joy of even just, even just as Luther says in the small catechism, wake up, make the sign of the cross, uh, remembering your baptism, you know, saying in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, remembering that you're baptized into His name. If you have time, say the creed, the Lord's Prayer. But you can, you can meditate, you can simply meditate on a line from the creed at the breakfast table. Or you can simply meditate on... Um, uh, one of the petitions from the Lord's Prayer. It's just a wonderful way. And I, and I, would, I, would, lay this, I would lay this on the, the father, that this is precisely, or the husband, precisely the role is to, is to bring the Word of God into the table so that, we're not, so that you're not just providing the, the physical food, the material food, um, but the spiritual food as well. And you're giving everyone something to chew on, even if it's just a morsel um, in the midst of all the other. Of course, of course, starting at ground zero, if you're not eating with your with your spouse, uh, okay, you want to make that change. If you're not eating with your fam- as a family, ch- spouses and children together, you want to make that change, and uh, and then you just want to slip in something, even if it even if it quickly kind of evaporates into the rest of the conversation and the jibber jabber that happens and the laughing and having fun. That's that's fine. Um, you as a father are providing some morsel of of spiritual sustenance, and it's easy to do. Okay. <coughs> Yeah, pray together at home and go to church. What great advice. 
Um, if you are overtaken by poverty, remember Peter and Paul, who were more honored than kings or rich men, though they spent their lives in hunger and thirst. Remind one another that nothing in life is to be feared except offending God. Oh, that's such a great line. Nothing in life is to be feared except offending God. This is such a beautiful way that God protects us from the fear of our enemies. What, they, what can man do to me? Absolutely nothing. My only fear is it's not to lose this or that or be abused in this way or taken advantage of in that way or be forced into this or forced into that. It's my only fear is offending God, and that's, that's the one thing I won't do. And what a refreshing outlook that is. Because of our sinful nature, ultimately impossible, but nonetheless worth striving for. If your marriage is like this, your perfection will rival the holiest of monks. And I love this. This is just a sideline side kind of line from him. But, um, but what, is he do? What, what he's really doing here is rather profound. This impulse that we sometimes have is like, I, I wish I was a, a monk or a nun. I wish I lived this ascetic life. I wish I was praying seven times a day. I wish I was going to, you know. Okay, if you have eyes to see it, marriage and family life is exactly like this. Hey, if you have eyes to see it, in marriage and family life, you don't often choose when you're going to wake up. <laughs> you don't know when the call to prayer is going to be, especially when you've got little kids. Your call to prayer may be seven times in an hour uh, <laughs> as you go in and pick them up and comfort and uh, pray for them and pray with them. Um, the asceticism, the sleeplessness, the, cha- the dietary changes, everything that you go through and endure. Um, this is all to be found in family life. So, I think this is a beautiful line. Your, your perfection will rival the holiest of monks. Okay? All these impulses that people uh, join the, the, the monastery um, for can be found um, readily, maybe even more abundantly, if you take kind of a Lutheran line on this, in, in the three estates and in our role at, in those three estates and our role as in the family, in the church, and in the, in the civil sphere. Yes? Yeah, yeah. Well, it just depends on how you define marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking about how to most efficiently discuss this. So, so I think this would be a fair way of putting the question. Um, given, given that... Uh, I don't know if there's an efficient way to present this. Um, Let me just say this. There is some disagreement among theologians as to whether uh, marriages in any way, marriages that were um, formed here on earth are in any way granted a special status or a continuation in heaven. And some say, some say um, the Bible doesn't give us enough information to make that determination. So it's, so it's an open question. We just don't know. And I think that that's fair. I mean, I, I'll grant that. I don't, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna nitpick at that at all. Others will say, and I think that this is the more dominant view, um, no, or if there, even if there is sort of this like ongoing status, I mean, because we're gonna recognize our parents in heaven as our parents, even though um, our true father is, uh, is God and, and that our true mother is the church. But we're still gonna recognize that. And so, too, we may, by, in parallel, say, yes, well, this person was my spouse. You know, 
Um, and there's going to be that kind of, but my true spouse is, is Christ. The one, you know, the one I'm truly married to is Christ. So, um, so some theologians, I think it's the majority, tend to, to negate any sense in which there'd be some sort of exclusive coupling off of, of married couples, you know, um, in, in favor of, of what Chrysostom here seems to be alluding to. And that is because, because the scriptures present the new heavens and the new earth as the marriage between God and man, the fullness of that marriage is, and, and we kind of want to take out of our mind any sexual, fleshly, lustful thoughts, is, is a perfect oneness experienced um, not only with Christ, but then with one another, which is really what the essence of, of marriage is supposed to be. You know? And so, so they would find, they would say, I, 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 think the, I think the answer would be, no, there's not marriage in heaven because we're all married to each other and to Christ in heaven. Does that make sense? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it would even, I mean, in a sense, it, like, and again, we just have to get rid of our kind of like lustful categories here because that never factors in. But yeah, like, like even man to man, there's just this, um, or woman to woman, right? Like, like there, there quite fitting would be in Christ, there's neither male nor female. I mean, just this idea of, of we're all people, we're all united to God, we're all united to, to each other, and sort of this, again, take the lewdness out of it, this sort of like perfect nakedness and innocence and openness and intimacy of just, you know, every, everything I am and have is yours and everything you are and have is mine and we share it all together and um, there's just love and harmony and bliss uh, among all of us. And we recognize each other as, as fellow creatures, as brothers and sisters, as um, spouses of Christ, and, and we see Christ uh, not only in and of himself, but Christ in and through our brothers and sisters. And that seems to be irrespective of the question of do we recognize our spouses as such in heaven. That seems to be the fundamental point, and really, what, again, what Chrysostom's alluding here to. Where, where was that line? Can you remind me? Was it on, the, on 61? Yeah, yeah, that your only hope is that the two of you pass through this life in such a way that in the world to come you will be united in perfect love. Was that the line? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to just make myself a note there on that. And your only hope. Yeah, I think that that's what he's alluding to. The idea of all of us being united together in Christ. Okay. Um, So off to 62 then. Off to 62. If you are inclined to entertain and give dinner parties, this is Chrysostom, there should be nothing immodest or excessive about them. And if you should find some poor saintly man who just by stepping into your house would bring God's blessing upon you, Invite him. Now, I'll add one more thing. None of you should look for a rich woman to marry, but a poor one instead. You'll get no satisfaction from her money, since if she is rich, she will annoy you with her taunts and demands. She'll be disrespectful and extravagant, 
and will frustrate you by saying things like, don't complain about all my clothes. I haven't spent anything of yours. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, this is such wise pastoral advice. We may not like it, but it's such wise pastoral advice because this is exactly the kind of thing that goes down. I'm still wearing my own clothes, bought with, uh, listen to this. Oh, Chris is my thing's going to have a heyday with this. I'm still wearing my own clothes, bought with the inheritance my parents gave me. Okay, that's end quote. Now Chrysostom says, what are you saying, woman? Still wearing your own clothes? What can be worse than this sort of language? You no longer have a body of your own, since you gave it away in marriage. Yet you have money of your own? After marriage, you are no longer two, but one flesh. And are your possessions still divided? Love of money. You have both become one person, one organism. And can you still say, my own? This cursed and abominable phrase comes from the devil. Yeah, my own. I, that is a cursed and a abominable phrase that comes from the devil in the context of marriage. Things, are, uh, things far nearer and dearer to us than material possessions God has made common to all. We can't say, my own light, my own sun, my own water. If all our greater blessings are held in common, why should money not be? Let the riches be lost 10,000 times over. Or rather, let not the riches be lost, but that frame of mind that doesn't know how to use money, but holds it higher in esteem than all other things. Teach her these lessons along with the others I have indicated, but do it with much compassion. The virtuous life has in itself much that is difficult to follow. So whenever you have to lecture her on the meaning of true wisdom, be sure that you humble yourself and that your words are full of grace and kindness. Yeah, and Chrysostom's take-home point too is like she's not going to listen to you unless you're doing it yourself, right? Above all, remove from her soul this notion of quote-unquote mine and quote-unquote yours. If she says the word mine, ask her what things do you call yours? I honestly don't know what you mean. For my part, I have nothing of my own. How can you speak of mine when everything is yours? I am yours. <laughs> These words aren't meant to flatter her, but they are full of wisdom and will soothe her anger and end her disappointment. It is flattery when a man acts dishonorably with an evil motive in mind. This, however, is the most honorable of motives. When you say, I am yours, you are repeating St. Paul's own advice. Now, quoting, For the wife does not rule over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not rule over his own body, but the wife does, end quote. And that from, uh, looks like 1 Corinthians 7. Say also, uh, and here quoting, if I have, oh no, this is, yeah. Say also, if I have no power over my own body, but rather you do, how much more power is yours over my material possessions? By speaking this way, you will put the devil to shame and will firmly unite her to yourself. Thus you will teach her by your own manner of speaking, 
never to speak in terms of mine and yours. Finally, never call her by her name alone, but with terms of endearment, honor, and love. If you honor her, she won't need honor from others. She won't desire praise from others if she enjoys the praise that comes from you. Prefer her before all others, both for her beauty and her discernment, and praise her. She will in this way be persuaded to listen to none that are outside, but to disregard all the world except for you. Teach her to fear God, and all other good things will flow from this one lesson as from a fountain, and your house will be filled with ten thousand blessings. If we seek the things that are perfect, the secondary things will follow. The Lord says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Matthew 6. What sort of person do you think the children of such parents will be? What kind of person are all the others who associate with them? Will they not eventually be the recipients of countless blessings as well? For generally the children acquire the character of their parents, are formed in the mold of their parents' temperament, love the same things their parents love, talk in the same fashion, and work for the same ends. If we order our lives in this way and diligently study the scriptures, we will find lessons to guide us in everything we need. In this way we will be able to please God and to pass through the course of this life in virtue and to gain those blessings which he has promised to those who love him, of which, God willing, may we be counted worthy through the grace and love for mankind of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom, together with the Holy Spirit, be glory, honor, and power to the Father now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. All right, here ends... uh, a lengthy homily, but the second of, uh, of the homilies here we've looked at from Chrysostom. Any thoughts you have, any questions you have in, in wrapping this up? Yes, sir. I was going to add uh, this comment of marrying a rich woman who brings in money, then then she uses that as a uh, shield or whatever. But a corollary to that is uh, the, wo- the working woman now. Two incomes. Mm-hmm. She has her own checking account. I. She says this. She says, "Well, I can do with my money what I want." Yes. You pay for the utilities and house and whatever, <laughs> and let her do yeah. the frivolous stuff. Right, so right. He didn't probably have two incomes in his day, you know. Um, but, but right. We have a version of that in another, and mm. it can be very damaging. Yes, yes. Uh, that's a great point that you bring up. So for the sake of those online, the, the um, maybe a parallel to uh, Chrysostom's warnings against the marrying a, a rich woman who then comes in talking about hers, 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 and thus, you know, has this bifurcation going on in the, in the marriage. A parallel to that caused by our circumstances isn't so much wealth, but the necessity of two worker income just to make make things balance or make things work. In some cases, it's done sheerly for the love of money. Uh, maybe the husband does, in fact, bring home enough to support the household, but the wife um, you know, wants more, and so in, engages in something that's just completely icing on the cake. right? And then you have these great tensions of, um, well, who's supposed to pay for what? <laughs> 
and uh, and you've got you know um, there I, again. I I don't think I think that there's I think we're left free as Christians to figure out and navigate these things the way we want to figure out and navigate. And I don't think that you know I know that there's some marriage counselors that say well you have to have one joint account and all of that. And I I don't know I don't really fall into that line. I think you can as long as things are governed rightly and everything's understood and everyone's pleased. I don't see why you can't have two accounts or separate accounts or fifteen different accounts. I don't you know. Why not? Um, the, the point is, if the biblical principles are, are being followed and, and you want to avoid this, hey, um, husband, you pay for um, the mortgage and the uh, utilities and, and the cars and the insurance and, um, and I pay for uh, you know, the trips I want to take with my girlfriends. Yeah, you got a toxic, <laughs> a toxic thing going on there, don't you? Yeah, so this is... Um, you know, this is, if these things can't be worked out, it's definitely opportunity to come and speak with your pastor and as a couple and see if uh, we can come to some sort of amiable way that we can live out these biblical principles of, hey, everything you have is mine and everything I have is yours and we're one flesh and there's not this separation. Uh, so how does that, now how do we concretely work that out? Um, and we can get down to brass tacks there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of... Um, a lot of the toxicity in our culture is uh, men are increasingly seen and encouraged to be um, what really objectively is just, is just the household slaves. I mean, they're, they're the ones that are supposed to do the labor, bring in the food and clothing, and um, increasingly run 50% of the inside of the home and 100% outside of it or... 75% outside of it, 50% in it. And then if the, you know, this, and this might get us a little too far afield, so I'll cut myself short, but, you know, and then if the, if, if the servant, i.e. the husband, isn't doing his job well enough, the wife just has government step in and cancel that. He'll still serve in one way, shape, or form through alimony or child support while I go get a more amicable servant. Um, and meanwhile, the government will be my true husband, and the government will provide for me and demand that my servants continue to provide for me. I mean, it allows this really, really toxic stuff going on. And this is why there's, this is why there's a, a burgeoning men's rights movement. It's taking on many, many forms. Um, I think it's particularly egregious in, in Canada and here in the States. Um, you can find countless horror stories. And, so, um, and, and you also find increasing movements um, predominantly am amongst uh, younger folks, younger men. There's something called uh, MGTOW, men going their own way. And this is just, um, it's just a group of, uh, and there's all different flavors of this. And I'm, not, and I'm not commending any of this. I'm not saying any of this is right. I'm just saying it's, in, it's symptomatic and indicative of a societal problem. That's it. The fact that you have these groups and movements. That's all I'm saying. Um, but this is men going their own way. Just men saying, in the current setup, you'd be foolish to get married. You're, you're, just in, you're just indenturing yourself. You're just making yourself a, a, a slave of a woman as long as she'll have you. And then as soon as she won't, she gets the kids and you're going to continue paying. Um, it's, it's actually really hard to argue against that, that that isn't the case. Um, and, that's, and that's even changed rapidly, generationally. I mean, once upon a time, once upon a time, if, um, if a couple came to you as a pastor and said, we want to get married, and the man said, yeah, but there's going to be a prenup, you'd say... <laughs> Yeah, you're not ready for marriage. There's no such thing as yours and, and hers. It's everyone's. 
But now, now in this, in this context, Pastor, I want to get a prenup. Why? Because I don't want her to run away and make me and her indentured servant sometime when things go south. Like, everybody, like it is for everybody else. Now all of a sudden the pastor's going, <laughs> in this context, maybe you have a point. Maybe you have a point. Maybe, maybe that's the only, maybe a prenup is the only leverage you have in terms of this power dynamic of the relationship. I'm sorry, did I say something wrong or foolish? I'd, why, why would he want to marry her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think, I think, I think that um, obviously there's a certain amount of blindness and trust going into the marriage, such that a man would say, hey, right now it looks okay, and I'm willing to go into it, but what happens if I get sick or can't work or we have fights or kids separate us down the way, and, and what happens if you, you change your mind and don't want to be married to me? What, what protections do I have under the law in the country right now? And the answer is like zero. Zero. I think it's like five out of six cases the female gets custody, gets, gets a majority custody. Um, yeah. I mean, how many situations are there where the man takes the kids and the woman goes and works full time and, and pays alimony and child support? Well, isn't that equality, though? I mean, wouldn't that be equality? So, so there's some things really twisted and messed up in our society and the, this idea that then men want to secure some kind of legal standing or legal rights should the thing go south and the woman already enjoys these uh, just naturally. I don't, I don't know. That becomes less and less objectionable as a pastor. It's more and more like, hey, I can see your, in this context, I can see your point. And if she's, if she's willing to have that and you're willing to have that and, and you're going to be bound together, I'd... I cease to see anything wrong with that contextually. <laughs> so it's a, it's a nasty world. It's a nasty world. Um, and it's nasty that young men have to think about this. And, and again, many young men just don't even want to think about it. There's, that's why you've got serial monogamy and marriage getting pushed later and later and nobody getting married. And, and then increasingly, too, I mean, this will take us way, way far afield, but for many, for many, many, um, as life expectancy increases, and there's many sociologists that have pointed this out, but as life, ex- I mean, we've created the midlife crisis at 40. If you only live till 40, <laughs> it's not your midlife crisis. You know, how do you get a midlife crisis at 40 when when uh, when age gets pushed? Uh, um, you know, age gets pushed to 80, like your your. Um, Life expectancy gets pushed to 80, then 40 is a midlife crisis. So, so then, so what happens, you know, and, and this was maybe a generation or two ago, but you have your kids in your 20s, uh, your early 20s, and um, the kids are out of the house about the time you're turning 40. And now it's like, the, now you've, you're, you're looking across the room from this person and you're like, we've got 40 more years together and there's no distraction. This is, I mean, this is one of the, societally speaking, it's one of the major reasons why divorces happen right then, right? It's like, it's like the first thing you have to do is survive childbearing. That's like the first major test of your marriage and the increased stress. And then you become accustomed to that if you survive. And then the next thing you have to survive is the empty nest. And you have to like redefine terms there again. This is why, okay, so what's, what's really toxic and what's, what's happening, none of this is prescriptive, by the way. This is all descriptive. It's just trying to assess where we're actually objectively at and why human beings are experiencing these things we're experiencing and why it's weird and somewhat unprecedented in the history of the world. 
It has a lot to do with life expectancy. So what's happening in these generations is you're not supposed to get married until you're 30. So that so you either have you either have and this is where sociologists are suggesting conservative-minded sociologists are suggesting that the way it's laid out, really it would be ideal for society if people got married three times. Because you have your, you'll have the wife of your youth, okay, and then you have the wife that you bear children with, and then you have the wife of your old age. Now, the fact of the matter is, in many cases, that's precisely what's happening or something that, like that is happening through divorce. Um, but, but again, societally speaking, if you're not supposed to get married into your 30s, what are you supposed to do? Be celibate? Good luck. Most people are going into puberty at like 14 to 16. So look what you were asking them to be celibate for. Okay? And, then, and then so they're, they're what? Supposed to have a, have a wife but then not have, I mean, not get married to her until she, and 30? And then, you've got your, and then you've got your kids from your 30s to your 50s, and that's rough, and you're already getting old and tired of it. And then... Um, and so that's stressful on both of you, and you've got two worker income, and so you've got all this, all that, like, good luck having a marriage that survives that. And then you pop out, and you realize all those distractions um, were the only thing keeping you going, and now you're in your 50s, and you're still, and, and your kids are out, and you're going, okay, but now I've got 30 years still with this, with this person. And there's all these scars and wounds, and you've drifted apart, and um, yeah, it's so... So I think, I think what's really helpful for us is to try, and maybe I haven't succeeded, maybe you totally disagree with me, but to try to take a stab at objectively describing the landscape in which we live and then understanding these pressures and why they're so common in our culture and why they're resulting in the kinds of patterned behaviors we see. And then, and then really only in understanding like the cultural, societal, lifelong disease, how we as Christians then address that and treat that and help each other through the different stages and support marriages. And, and then also maybe too, while keeping a super hard theological line on what's right and what's wrong, also be very compassionate towards people when we realize how they've been trashed by this system. You know, having compassion towards the, towards the, the late 20-something, the 30-something, who's had multiple sexual partners, hasn't been married. Um, and not because, not, yeah, there's, there's, there's a personal culpability there. Don't get me wrong. But like, really, what were the options presented? What, what options were society presenting? Go ahead and get married at 16 because we'll, we have an infrastructure for that and we'll support you for that. No! So what options did we give them? So while I can re fully retain like the personal culpability, I can also say, oh, I have compassion for you. And the same is true like for the two worker incomes and the families and they're trying to hold it all together and the marriage gets destroyed in the process. It's like without erasing personal culpability, I have compassion for you. You're divorced, I have compassion for you. I know what you went through. What was, what was the infrastructure put in place by society and the church in order to help you through this? Zero. You know, and the same is true then when a divorce happens after kids because it's like this new chapter and you just don't know what to do with yourself. And um, like, like, again, there's nothing, nothing um, t taken away from individual culpability. Uh, but there is compassion because what, what options were given? You know, 
what options we're given. So all, the, all this to be a sermon, um, <laughs> a sermon on uh, having compassion by people in our society who are broken by the sexual norms and mores in which we live and the, the, the societal construct in which we live, which is almost impossible to live as a Christian within. And those people who manage it in some way, shape, or form, um, you know, we should be praised and put on a pedestal and, and thanked, and we ought to seek their advice and honor them, to be sure. But more than that, we ought to count that as a supernatural blessing of God and give thanks to Him and praise to Him whenever we see that. So, anyway, all of this just, just directed, directed towards us as Christians in, in viewing people with compassion as, uh, as life chews us up and spits us out. Okay, that's, um, that's probably enough for today. Let's jump into homily 21. It's going to be back in Ephesians, but a different section. And, um, it, and here now you say, well, we've, all we've done is marriage. All we've done is Sixth Commandment type stuff. Okay, well, now we're moving on to family. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 is going to be children and parents. So that will really be the, the heart of this next homily. Until next week, the Lord be with you. <laughs>